welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hi. So um, last week we had Beth on (laughs) and that was great. And we talked a lot about fire. Yes, we did. And as I mentioned briefly, I was (laughs) overprepared for my segment on uh, the Great Fire of London. And I actually wrote six pages on it and a quiz. Great. Um, so we're just going to really expand yeah. on the Great Fire? Yeah. Some, it's like a zoom in yes. on that particular spot in the previous episode. Exactly. So if you haven't listened to our previous episode, Fire in the Hole, um, you might want to check that out. But otherwise, um, here, here's, <laughs> here's Lauren. Here's me. Uh, so my topic today is the Great Fire of London, London's Burning. London's burning, London's burning, fetch the engine, fetch the engine, fire, 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 fire. Okay, so I previously had spoken on uh, the Great Plague of London. Yes. And um, this is directly linked to it because it happened mere months after the plague ended. So, a little background. By the 1660s, London was by far the largest city in Britain. Uh, It was estimated at half a million inhabitants. Um, However, due to the Great Plague of London during the last winter, its population was lower than before it. Uh, John Evelyn, the English writer and diarist, contrasting London to the Baroque magnificence of Paris, called it a, quote, wooden, northern, and inartificial congestion of houses. What have we learned about wooden houses? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's just, mm, you're really going to love how flammable the city of London was. Um, He actually expressed alarm about the fire hazards posed by the wood and the congestion. Okay. Um, and what he meant by inartificial means that he meant that it was unplanned and makeshift and the result of organic growth and unregulated urban sprawl. Okay. So, um, again, London had been a Roman settlement for four centuries and had become progressively more crowded inside its defensive city wall. Um, it had also pushed outwards beyond the wall into squalid extramural slums such as Shoreditch, Holborn, and Southwark, which was on the south end of the River Thames. Mm-hmm. Um, it had reached far enough to include the independent city of Westminster as, uh, also. So the aristocracy um, shunned the city and lived either in the countryside beyond the slum suburbs or in the exclusive Westminster district, which is uh, in the modern West End of London today. Mm -hmm. Um, The site of King Charles II's court at Whitehall. Wealthy people preferred to live at a convenient distance from the traffic-clogged, polluted, unhealthy city. Great. uh, Especially after the plague year of 1665. Um, And also the relationship was often tense between the city and the crown. The city had its own... um, political system and mm-hmm. series. There was the mayor and like a bunch of council men and that kind of thing. And they were really quite frequently at odds with King Charles II. Um, the city of London also had been a stronghold of Republicanism during the civil war, which was 1642 to 1651. And the wealthy and economically dynamic capital still had the potential to be a threat to Charles II, as had been demonstrated by several Republican uprisings in London in the early 1660s. Yes. So they were already not, super into the monarchy and then Charles II came back and they were like, okay, this guy. All right. So the city magistrates were of the generation that had fought in the civil war and could remember how Charles I's grab for absolute power had led to that national trauma. So you already have like some political tensions between the crown and the city of London. So the city itself was essentially medieval in its street plan, which was an overcrowded warren of narrow winding cobbled alleys. 
so cozy. Um, <laughs> it had experienced several major fires before 1666, the most recent in 1632. So they weren't unfamiliar with like great conflagrations. Yeah. Um, so building with wood and roofing with thatch had been prohibited for centuries, but these cheap materials continued to be used because they were cheap and, and no, no one was really coming no, down on people. No, about it. Absolutely not. Um, the only major stone built area was the wealthy center of the city where the mansions of the merchants and brokers stood on spacious lots surrounded by an inner ring of overcrowded poorer parishes whose every inch of building space was used to accommodate the rapidly growing population. So these parishes also contained workplaces, many of which were fire hazards, foundries, smithies, and glaziers. Match factories? Uh, no, you know what? In all of my research, I didn't see match factories, (laughs) but I'm almost positive there were probably a match factory or two within the wall. Um, in fact, they were technically illegal in the city, but they were tolerated in practice. Yeah. Um, so the human habitations were crowded to bursting point, uh, intermingled with these sources of heat, sparks, and pollution, and their construction increased the fire risk. So as I had mentioned before, the typical six or seven story timbered London tenement houses had jetties, those projecting yeah. upper floors. Um, and they had a narrow footprint at ground level, but maximized their use of land by encroaching onto the street. And as a contemporary observer put it with the gradually increasing size of their upper stories, Um, the fire hazard was well perceived when the top jetties all but met across the narrow alleys (laughs) as it does facilitate a conflagration. So does it also hinder the remedy wrote one observer. So these were like unsanctioned building projects. So this is like your redneck cousin, like just adding on to his, (laughs) to his home. Exactly. Without any permits or like or anything. Or like anybody knowing exactly what they were doing when they were building this stuff. Yeah. And no one really, um, this like, is like me building <laughs> yeah. the second floor to Just my like, house. This looks good. You know, you're not so hold. It'll be fine. Um, so they were illegal, but apparently the covetousness of the citizens and connivancy or corruption of the magistrates worked in favor of jetties. Okay. Yeah. So people would get paid off and be like, just let me have my jetty. Yeah. And so that was the way I it need went. to put my 16 kids somewhere. Exactly. So in 1661, Charles II issued a proclamation forbidding overhanging widows and jetties, but this was largely ignored by the local government because sure. they were like, you can't, like, you can't boss us around. Um, so Charles's next sharper message in 1665 warned of the risk of fire from the narrowness of the streets and authorized both imprisonment of recalcitrant builders Ooh. and demolition of dangerous buildings. Um, that too had little impact. They were like, whatever, man. <laughs> Um, so again, as I mentioned before, wattle and daub was a common building material. Wattle and daub. Wattle and daub. At your service. <laughs> Excuse me, miss. I see you have a body in your living room. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Wattle here. <laughs> and Silas Daub. <laughs> We're partners. <laughs> We're going to solve this murder if it's the last thing we do. All right. <clears throat> so... Research by fire brigades showed that well-made new wattle and daub is strongly fire resistant, as a matter of fact, but old neglected wattle and daub with patches of daub flaked off, exposing patches of wattle catches fire readily. So it was like dry and crusty, you know, it's all that stuff. So also the riverfront was important in the development of the great fire. The Thames offered water for firefighting and the chance of escape by boat, but the poor districts along the riverfront had stores and cellars of combustibles, which increased the fire risk. Oh, naturally. Of course. That's where I'm putting my combustibles well, down all, by the river. All along the wharves, the rickety wooden tenements and tar paper shacks of the poor were shoehorned amongst old paper buildings and the most combustible matter of tar, pitch, hemp, 
rosin, and flax, which was all laid up thereabouts. How did anybody live this long? I know, right? How did we survive as a species? Because we were just like pack rats, just packing ourselves in with (laughs) flammable materials. Um, Oh, by the way, did you know London was also full of gunpowder? Oh. Yeah, especially along the riverfront. (laughs) Because much of it was left in the homes of private citizens from the days of the English Civil War, as the former members of Oliver Cromwell's New Model Army still retain their muskets and the powder with which uh, to load them. So five or uh, to six hundred tons of powder were stored in the Tower of London, just oh like my gosh. big barrels. Mm-hmm. Um, the ship chandlers along the wharves also held large stocks stored in wooden barrels. Um, so again, fires were really common in the crowded Woodbuild city with its open fireplaces, candles, ovens, and stores of combustibles. Um, there was no police or fire brigade to call, but London's local militia known as the trained bands were available for general emergencies, at least in principle. Um, watching fire was one of the jobs of the watch, which a thousand watchmen or bellmen who patrolled the streets at night would do so. Um, self-reliant community procedures were in place for dealing with fires and they were usually effective. Public spirited citizens would be alerted to a dangerous house fire by muffled peals on the church bells and would congregate hastily to fight the fire. So it's basically like you're on your own. Yeah. You're like fire. They'd be like, get the bucket. Like, you know, that's my, (laughs) that's my London accent. (laughs) 17th century. Yeah. Yeah. So the methods available for this relied on demolition and water. Those were the two ways of fighting the fire. So by law, the tower of every parish church had to hold equipment for these efforts. Long ladders, leather buckets, axes, and what was known as fire hooks for pulling down buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes taller buildings were leveled to the ground quickly and effectively by means of controlled gunpowder explosions. So they would literally blow up buildings. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, This drastic method of creating fire breaks were increasingly used toward the end of the Great Fire, and modern historians believe that it was what finally won the struggle. So a fire break, you would tear down a building in advance of a fire so that it would not have, it wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. um, cross to another building. So it would create like, it would kind of smother the fire and like stop it in terms of stopping the fuel yeah. that it needed. Um, so the reason why we know so much about the great fire, considering it was the 17th century and you know, only it, four people could write exactly um, <laughs> is because uh, many Londoners wrote about it in their diaries and letters to friends and family. And two of the most important diarists of their age, Samuel Pepys, who I mentioned, he wrote a lot about the plague and John Evelyn, as I mentioned before, recorded their day-to-day observances and kept themselves informed of what happened all over the city and beyond. So they were constantly like hearing rumors and talking to people and like actually participating in trying to fight the fire more Samuel Pepys than John Evelyn. John Evelyn was kind of a snooty guy who was very rich. Samuel Pepys was more like middle class Mm -hmm. type. So he was more like directly involved. So here we go. After two rainy summers in 1664 and 1665, London had lain under an exceptional drought since November of 1665, and the wooden buildings were tinder dry after the long, hot summer of 1666. Oh, boy. A fire broke out at Thomas Farriner's Bakery in Pudding Lane a little after midnight on Sunday, September 2nd. The family was trapped upstairs but managed to climb from an upstairs window to the house next door, except for a maidservant who was too frightened to try, who became the first victim. So the neighbors tried to help douse the fire, and after an hour, the parish constables arrived and judged that the adjoining houses had better be demolished to prevent further spread. So at this point, like, you could be just fine living in your house, cooking in your in your one room with yep. your 17 kids. And then somebody could come and be like, uh, your neighbor's house is on mm-hmm. fire. So we're going to knock your house down. Yep. Exactly. And you'd be like, but so that's interesting <laughs> that you should say it because those particular householders protested. 
Yeah. They were like, no, you can't break down my building. Like, this is my house. So the Lord Mayor, Sir Thomas Bloodworth, was summoned. Ooh. Remember that name. Um, he alone had the authority to override their wishes. He okay. was the only one who could be like, nope, sorry, we're taking this house down. There's nothing you can do. So when Bloodworth arrived, the flames were consuming the adjoining houses and creeping toward the paper warehouses and flammable stores on the riverfront. <laughs> paper warehouses. What? Oh. They might as well. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Okay. So the more experienced firemen were clamoring for demolition, but Bloodworth refused on the grounds that most premises were rented and the owners could not be found. Oh, yes. okay. So Bloodworth is red tape. Yeah. Lots of red tape. So Bloodworth is generally thought to have been appointed to the office of Lord mayor as a yes man, rather than possessing requisite capabilities for the job. Hmm. He panicked when faced with a sudden emergency and when pressed made the off quoted remark, quote, pish, a woman could piss it out. And And then he left. Then he was like, whatever. All right. He he left. You guys Um, got this. Bye. Yeah. So after the city had been destroyed, Samuel Pepys looked back on the events and wrote in his diary on September 7th, 1666, quote, people do all the world over cry out of the stupidity of my Lord Mayor in general, and more particularly in this business of the fire, laying it all upon him. So Bloodworth did not turn out great Uh in this story. So Samuel Pepys, he was a senior official in the Navy office by then, and he ascended to the Tower of London on Sunday morning to view the fire from a turret. Um, he recorded in his diary that the eastern gale had turned it into a conflagration, this easterly wind that okay. really like um, really like kicked up the fire and made it turn into like the great fire that it became. Mm-hmm. Um, it had burned down several churches, and he estimated 300 houses and reached the riverfront. Um, the houses on London Bridge were burning. He took a boat to inspect the destruction around Pudding Lane at close range and describes a lamentable fire, quote, everybody endeavoring to remove their goods and flinging into the river or bringing them into lighters that lay off poor people staying in their houses as long till the fire, the very fire touched them and then running into boats or clambering from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another. Peeps continued westward on the river to the court at Whitehall. Quote, where people came about me and did give them an account dismayed them all and the word was carried into the king. So I was called for and did tell the king and Duke of York what I saw, and that unless his majesty did command houses to be pulled down, nothing could stop the fire. They seemed much troubled, and the king commanded me to go to my lord mayor from him and command him to spare no houses but to pull down before the fire every way. Charles's brother, James, Duke of York, offered the use of the royal lifeguards to help fight the fire. Okay. So James, Duke of York, is kind of the hero of this story. Okay, great. Um, so the fire spread quickly in the high wind, and by mid-morning on Sunday, people abandoned attempts at extinguishing it and fled. Um, the moving human mass and their bundles and carts made the lanes impassable for firemen and carriages because it was just like a mass exodus. Kind of like when people are leaving the shores of a hurricane. Yes. It's like you can't... Or everyone's trying to leave a concert at yeah. the same time. Or a, or a, <laughs> a sports event. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nightmare. So... Peeps took a coach back into the city from Whitehall, but reached only St. Paul's Cathedral before he had to get out and walk because it was so crazy. Um, pedestrians with handcarts and goods were still on the move away from the fire, heavily weighed down. The parish churches, not directly threatened, were filling up with furniture and valuables, which soon had to be mo- moved further afield because the fire was coming for them too. Peeps found Bloodworth trying to coordinate the firefighting efforts and near to collapse, quote, like a fainting woman. <laughs> crying out plaintively in response to the king's message that he was pulling down houses. But the fire overtakes us faster than we can do it, he said. Holding on to his civic dignity, he refused James's offer of soldiers and then went home to bed. So this guy 
Bloodworth was like, we are pulling down houses. We're I'm sleepy. I'm going to take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> I won't be of any use to me, you. Me, me, I don't even care. Like somebody on a group project. I know, right? Ugh. God, I hate a group project. <laughs> There's always that one person. <laughs> I'm tired. Um, so King Charles II sailed down from Whitehall in the Royal Barge to inspect the scene. So he showed up himself. And he found that houses were still not being pulled down in spite of Bloodworth's assurances to peeps and daringly overrode the authority of Bloodworth to o- order wholesale demolitions west of the fire zone. Um, the delay rendered these measures largely futile as the fire was already out of control. Um, so all political, like, you know, jostling yeah. actually did not, actually, I would say, made the fire worse because <laughs> Bloodworth oh. was like, I'm not going to listen to the king because he's a jerk. And just didn't do what he was supposed to do. Ugh. So by Sunday afternoon, 18 hours after the alarm was raised in Pudding Lane, the fire had become a raging firestorm that created its own weather. That's <gasps> how crazy what? this fire was. So a tremendous uprush of hot air above the flames was driven by the chimney effect wherever constrictions narrowed the air current, oh. such as the constricted space between jettied buildings. And this left a vacuum at ground level. <gasps> So the resulting strong inward winds did not tend to put the fire out, as might be thought, because it was so windy. Instead, they supplied fresh oxygen to the flames, and the turbulence created by the uprush made the wind veer erratically both north and south of the main easterly direction of the gale, which was still blowing. So it just just made it angrier and stronger. It just fed the fire. So the fire was principally extending north and west by dawn on Monday, September 3rd, um, and the turbulence of the firestorm pushing the flames both further south and further north than the day before. Um, Suspicion soon arose in the threatened city that the fire was no accident. Um, The swirling winds carried sparks and burning flakes long distances to lodge on thatched roofs and in wooden gutters, causing seemingly unrelated house fires to break out far from their source and giving rise to rumors that fresh fires were being set on purpose. So foreigners were immediately suspect because of the current Second Anglo-Dutch War, and fear and suspicion hardened to certainty on Monday as reports circulated of imminent invasion and a foreign undercover agent seen casting fireballs into houses or caught with hand grenades or matches. So there was a wave of street violence, and a young man named William Taswell, who wrote in his diary, saw a mob loot the shop of a French painter and level it to the ground. And he watched in horror as a blacksmith walked up to a Frenchman on the street and hit him over the head with an iron bar. So it's just like insanity. Everyone's losing their minds. They're burning. If they're not burning up, they're they're under attack. Exactly. So the fears of terrorism received an extra boost from the disruption of communications and news as facilities were devoured by the fire. So this Mm -hmm. is, a thing that I mentioned last week, the general letter office in Threadneedle Street burned down early on Monday morning um, through which post passed for the entire country. Oh. Um, and the London Gazette just managed to put out its Monday issue before the printer's premises went up, to, went up in flames. <laughs> so the whole nation depended on these communications and the void where they left filled up with rumors. So basically people were like, well, there's no, there's no letters coming out and there's no newspaper to tell us what the hell's going on. So you know what it is. It's the Dutch. <laughs> So there were also religious alarms of renewed gunpowder plots. Suspicions rose to panic and collective paranoia on Monday, and both the train bands and the Coldstream guards focused less on firefighting and more on rounding up foreigners, Catholics, and any odd-looking people, arresting them or rescuing them from mobs, or both together. Um, So the inhabitants were growing desperate to remove their belongings from the city, especially the upper class, and this provided a source of income for the able-bodied poor. Um, 
They hired out as porters, sometimes simply just making off with the goods. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'll carry your... I'll take your armoire to your grandma's house. Yeah, sure. Just give it to me. Um, so it was especially proper, profitable for the owners of carts and boats. Um, hiring a cart had cost a couple of shillings on the Saturday before the fire. But on Monday, it rose to as much as 40 pounds, a fortune equivalent to more than 4,000 pounds today. So surge pricing, yeah. again, has <laughs> been in effect for centuries. Yep. So Monday marked the beginning of organized action, even as order broke down in the streets, especially at the gates, and the fire raged unchecked. Uh, Bloodworth was responsible as Lord Mayor for coordinating the firefighting, but he had apparently left the city. Oh, boy. His name is not mentioned in any contemporaneous accounts of the Monday's events. Uh, so in this state of emergency, the king again overrode the city authorities and put his brother James, Duke of York, in charge of operations. Okay. So James was like, Yes, here we go. I'm going to do this. He set up command posts around the perimeter of the fire, press ganging into teams of well-paid and well-fed firemen, any men of the lower classes found in the streets. Three courtiers were put in charge of each post with authority from Charles himself to order demolitions. This visible gesture of solidarity from the crown was intended to cut through the citizens' misgivings about being held financially responsible for pulling down houses. Um, James and his lifeguards rode up and down the streets all Monday, rescuing foreigners from the mob and attempting to keep order. Um, a witness in a letter on September 8th wrote, the Duke of York hath won the hearts of the people with his continual and indefatigable pains day and night in helping to quench the fire. Aww. Um, in fact, a contemporary account says that King Charles in person worked manually that day and later to help throw water on flames and to help demolish buildings to make a fire break. So the king was in there. Wow. That's how I wonder cool if he took his wig off. I mean, probs, right? I Hopefully. mean, that would just go up like that. There's powder and stuff in there. You know. So, Tuesday, September 4th was the day of the greatest destruction. Ugh. The Duke of York's command post at Temple Bar, where Strand meets Fleet Street, was supposed to stop the fire's westward advances toward the Palace of Whitehall, which is like, we gotta, yep. this is the palace. Um, he hoped that the River Fleet would form a natural fire break, making a stand with his firemen from the Fleet Bridge and down to the Thames. So mm -hmm. the Fleet, um, the River Fleet is like a little tiny tributary that runs from outside the city through the city into yeah. the Thames. Is it underground? underground now? it is there's it's all underground yeah. now mm -hmm. um so however early tuesday morning the flames jumped over the fleet forcing them to run for Oof. it so that didn't work also everybody had thought saint paul's cathedral as a safe refuge with its thick stone walls and natural fire break in the form of a wide empty surrounding plaza sure so it had been crammed full of rescued goods and its crypt was filled with the tightly packed stocks of the printers and booksellers in adjoining uh paternoster row mm -hmm. However, the building was covered in wooden scaffolding, undergoing piecemeal restoration. Yeah. So the scaffolding caught fire on Tuesday night. So young William Taswell was leaving school. Uh, he stood on the Westminster stairs a mile away and watched as the flames crept around the cathedral and the burning scaffolding igniting the timbered roof beams. Ugh. So within a half an hour, the lead roof was melting and the books and papers in the crypt caught with a roar. Quote, the stones of Paul's flew like grenadoes, reported Evelyn in his diary. The melting lead running down the streets in a stream and the very pavements glowing with fiery redness so as no horse nor man were able to tread on them. And the cathedral was quickly a ruin. Can you imagine the lead <laughs> the lead oh, roof melted and like ran in streams down the street like like lava. It's crazy. They must have thought they were in hell. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's why this like, is it. Yeah. 1666. They saw that. Remember I told you that they yeah. saw that, um, the comet and they were like, <sighs> and then everybody got sick and then everybody just burned to ground. <laughs> so, so. Um, and you know, 666 in the 1666, sure. they were like, that's it. It's hell. Um, 
So in St. Paul's falling heavy masonry broke through the, its crypt where booksellers had stored huge stocks oh. of books and all were burned. Oh. So during the day, the flames began to move eastward from the neighborhood of Pudding Lane straight against the prevailing east wind and toward Pepys's home on Seething Lane and the Tower of London with its gunpowder stores. So the garrison at the tower took matters into its own hands and waiting all day for requested help from James's official firemen who were busy in the West. So they created fire breaks by blowing up houses on a large scale in the vicinity, halting the advance of the fire. And in a letter to William Coventry, Pepys wrote that he quote, saw how horribly the sky looks all on fire in the night was enough to put us out of our wits. And indeed it was extremely dreadful for it looks just as if it were at us and the whole heaven on fire. Um, the wind dropped on Tuesday evening and the fire breaks created by the garrison finally began to take effect on Wednesday, September 5th. Stopping the fire caused much fire and demolition damage in the lawyer's area called the temple. Uh, Peeps walked all over the smoldering city, getting his feet hot and climbed the steeple <laughs> of Barking Church from which he viewed the destroyed city. Quote, the saddest sight of desolation that I have ever saw. There were many separate fires still burning themselves out, but the great fire was over. Okay. The following Sunday, rain fell over the city, extinguishing the rest of the fire. However, it took until the following March before embers stopped reigniting. Ugh. That's how much like was left over. Jeez, oh man. So only a few deaths from the fire are officially recorded. Okay. And the deaths are traditionally believed to have been a few. However, um, some accounts give the figure as eight and others as, quote, in single figures. Um, although some deaths may have gone unrecorded and that besides direct deaths from burning and smoke inhalation, refugees also perished in the impromptu camps and like the, uh, okay. the, yeah. So the fire was fed not merely by wood fabrics and thatch, but also by the oil, pitch, tar, coal, tallow, fats, <laughs> sugar, alcohol, turpentine, and gunpowder stored in the Riverside district. It melted the imported steel lying along the wharves. Uh, steel's melting point, by the way, is between 2,300 and 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> and the great iron chains and locks on the city gates melted. Uh, melting point of iron is between 2,000 and 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my gosh. A heat like that would most definitely reduce a body to pure ash because a body burns at 1,400 to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which I Googled with not in private Oof. mode. So I'm going to get some weird, weird. ads. Weird algorithm now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in fact, there was probably several hundred, if not several thousand deaths. Um, the bills of mortality were also not compiled for the period of the fire. Oh, right, because they didn't really have a census No, then. absolutely not. So the disruption of the fire, it was just too much. So there were no bills of mortality for like two years yeah. during that time period. Um, so, again, as I mentioned before, but I'm going to say it again. The material destruction had been computed at 13,500 houses, 87 parish churches, 44 company halls, the Royal Exchange, the Custom House, St. Paul's Cathedral, the Bridewell Palace, and other city prisons, the General Letter Office, and the three western city gates, Ludgate, Newgate, and Aldersgate. And the monetary value of the loss, first estimated at 100 million pounds in the currency of the time, was later reduced to an uncertain 10 million pounds, which was equivalent to 1.66 billion in 2018. <laughs> So on Charles's initiative, a monument to the Great Fire of London was erected near Pudding Lane, designed by Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke, okay. standing 61 meters, 200 feet tall, and known simply as the Monument. It still stands the today. The Monument. It is a familiar London landmark, which has since given its name to a tube station as well. Um, another monument marks the spot. Oh, we saw that. Did you? 
I didn't know what it was a monument for. It is the monument for the Great Fire of they London. They didn't finish the sentence. No. I'm not sure. We there we were right by the tube station monument and walked by and we were like, well, I guess that's the monument. <laughs> didn't know what it was from. Yeah. It's for the fire. So it's on Pudding Lane? Yeah. No, it is on Pudding Lane. Then yes. that was actually right near where we stayed when we were in London. Oh my God. You stayed in London near the where the fire yeah, began. Yeah, we were near London Bridge. Okay. And... Um, we did the Great Tower of London tour at night and then decided to just walk back to our hotel instead of like worrying about buses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we walked past it and you could see the monument from um, London Bridge. That's so cool. When we were walking. Yeah, so you saw it. Um, so another monument marks the spot where the fire ended. Okay. And that's known as the Golden Boy of Pie Corner in Smithfield. Um, it's a little like golden putty statue. Um, and a in- What? <laughs> Puti. Uh, Puti is a little baby in art okay. that doesn't have wings. Like uh, there's a cherub, okay. which is a baby angel. Yeah. And then a Puti is just a baby <laughs> with no wings. A, ba- a statue of a baby. A statue of a baby boy, golden boy of Pie Corner in Smithfield. So according to the inscription, it was evidence of God's wrath on the city of London for the sin of gluttony that the fire started at Pudding Lane and stopped at Pie Corner. That's, that's P-Y-E. Yeah, P-Y-E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's the golden boy of uh pie corner how about that yeah so that is my quick and dirty on london's burning Ugh. the great fire of london yeah so if you if you didn't get a chance to listen to lauren's episode on the great plague of london <laughs> from 1666 you should do that too and then just amaze all of your friends and family with everything that went wrong in london that oh year. yeah just like knowing all about early modern london is so great <laughs> so my quiz today is somewhat related. Um, my quiz today is a quiz on other hot things. Okay. Question number one. This metal hydroxide can burn the hell out of you, but it's also often used to cure fish, olives, and even bagels. Some might know it from soap making or from trying to hide a murder victor. What name is this hot chemical best known by? Question number two. This mostly abandoned town in the middle of Pennsylvania is still experiencing the phenomenon of an internal fire burning underground when a coal seam was ignited in May 1962. What is the name of this probably very steamy town? Question number three. It's dangerous to look directly at the sun, Sol, as you know, or as we call it, the day star. But when you have the right protection on your eyes, you might see darker patches on its surface that are actually cooler than the rest of the sun. What are those areas called? Question number four. The leaves and young stems of this herbaceous plant are fitted with pricking hairs tipped with formic acid and other irritants. If touched, these needle-like hairs inject the stinging acid into the skin, triggering a burning, tingling sensation and an itchy rash. It's also a popular tea consumed for lots of healthy reasons. What is this plant? Question number five. True or false, you can get a sunburn through a car window. Question number six. Introduced to the market in 1868, which hot sauce company is the oldest surviving brand in the world? You've seen it plenty of times on the dining tables of various Mexican and barbecue joints. Question number seven. While legend has it that the first hot dog eating contest was held in 1916 to settle a bet over who was more patriotic, the first recorded contest was in 1972. What hot dog company has headlined the most famous hot dog eating contest since then, which is held annually on July 4th in Coney Island? Question number eight. It's not a key or an atoll. 
Urban areas often experience higher temperatures during the summer, thanks to an effect known as an urban heat what? Question number nine. The first hot air balloon passengers were a rooster, a duck, and a sheep, thanks to the whims and fancies of what 18th century French queen? And finally, question number 10. Channing Tatum first burst on the silver screen in the classic film Step Up and went on to star in such films as Magic Mike, Magic Mike XXL, and what 2010 Nicholas Sparks tearjerker that paired him with Amanda Seyfried? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with answers. London's burning! London's burning! <laughs> I didn't know that you were, I mean, for someone who does not like spicy food, you are very knowledgeable about a lot of hot, hot things. things. Yes. Okay. All right, let's do it. All right. Question number one, this metal hydroxide can burn the hell out of you, but is also often used to cure fish, olives, and even bagels. Some might know it from soap making or from trying to hide a murder victim. What name is this hot chemical best known by? Lie. It is lie. Um, as a matter of fact, Italian serial killer Leonardo Cianciulli, known as the soap maker of Correggio, or La Saponificratice de Recreggio, used this chemical to turn dead bodies into soap and their blood into cookies that she oh, served. No! She served them these crunchy, delicious cookies to um, her neighbors. She was like, oh, come on over for some biscotti. Would you like some tea? Oh, look at this. So these crunch cookies that I made myself. Oh, take some uh, butter soap home with oh, you, won't so you? And it, it's so beautiful. In fact, when she uh, finally, when they finally caught her, um, she said that her last victim made the best soap because it was like, she was like extra fatty. Like, I guess she was kind of a, <gasps> like she was a, a zest, a zest uh-huh. woman. And she was like, oh, she made the best soap. It was so creamy and wonderful. She like, would make soap and like hand it out to people. And she was never um, apologetic. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you got to watch out. Okay. <clears throat> it gets better, I promise. There's no more uh, gross stuff. All right, question number two. This mostly abandoned town in the middle of Pennsylvania is still experiencing the phenomenon of an eternal fire burning underground when a coal seam was ignited in May 1962. What is the name of this probably very steamy town? This is Centralia. It is Centralia. Um, this fire is suspected to have begun from the deliberate burning of trash in a former strip mine, which ignited the coal seam. And at this rate, the fire could continue <laughs> to burn for another 250 years. There are still there are still a few people that live there. Yeah, apparently there are only about 10 people who yeah. still live there. Yeah. Because they're like, whatever. This is my home. (laughs) I'm not leaving. So you can't drive. Like I've seen photos where like the highway that went through the town, the highway is cracked and there are flames coming out of the the cracks in the road. So you can't get there. No. (laughs) Like, what do you do and get out of there? What's wrong with you? You can't sell your house. Like, oh, it's ridiculous. Pennsylvanians. 
Anyway, the the middle of the state is a is its own its own its own land. Well, it's like southern New York, you know. Okay, I don't know anything about southern New York. Well, think is of, it much like central it's Pennsylvania, exactly like central Pennsylvania. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Question number three. It's dangerous to look directly at the sun, Sol, as you know, or as we call it, the day star. The day star. The day star. We especially talk about it in that way during the wintertime. Yes. When we rarely get to see it. I have definitely... Her. It? Him? Him. Is the yeah. sun a him? I think because Sol, you know, like... The Uncle moon Solomon. is a lady. Yes. Okay. Sorry. I derailed your... No, it's totally fine. Great. I have definitely said to my coworkers at work, like, ah, the day star smiles at us. And everyone's like, what is wrong with you? Um, I really got to, you know, really just... Keep it together. Remember your audience. Work. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so when you have the right protection on your eyes, you might see darker patches on its surface that are actually cooler than the rest of the sun. What are those areas called? I mean, they're sunspots? Yes, they're sunspots. Great. Uh, sunspots are temporary phenomena on the sun's photosphere that appear as spots darker than the surrounding areas. Uh, they are regions of reduced surface temperature caused by concentrations of magnetic field flux that inhibit convection or like the circulation. Yeah. Um, sunspots usually appear in pairs of opposite magnetic polarity. Oh, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Okay, question number four. The leaves and young stems of this herbaceous plant are fitted with pricking hairs tipped with formic acid and other irritants. If touched, these needle-like hairs inject the stinging acid into the skin, triggering a burning, tingling sensation and an itchy rash. It's also a popular tea consumed for lots of healthy reasons. What is this plant? Chamomile? No. no. Okay, wait. Give me that. Give me Okay, second. I will. I'll show you later. <sighs> Herbaceous. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. You want me to tell you? Yeah. It's stinging nettle. Oh, yeah. I knew that yeah. crap. Apparently, it's full of life-giving polyphenols and antioxidants and yeah. also pain. It's just really hard to get to them. Yeah. But you can go to Wegmans and like the all-natural section, you could buy stinging nettle tea. We talked about stinging nettle in my chopped episode too. Oh, just yeah, yeah. Didn't, just didn't come to my come to the front. It's okay. You've been doing really great so far. All right. Question number five. True or false, you can get a sunburn through a car window. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say true asterisk in case you decide to tell me that it's false. <laughs> okay. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm going to say true. Okay. The answer is false, though. (laughs) Sorry. You, okay. Most windows block UVB rays, which causes sunburn. Uh They do not, however, block UVA rays, which are the ones that get deep into the skin and cause wrinkles, collagen breakdown, and skin cancer. Okay. So that's why you should always wear broad spectrum sunscreen. Now, I have gotten sunburn on the left side of my arm while driving in the car before. Okay. It might be because... Um, the the coating that they put mm-hmm. on the window that blocks the UVB may have been like worn off like it was an old car yeah, or whatever. It's my 1995 Pontiac Grand Am. Yeah. So yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Um, but yeah, typically in a car, Kay. you can't get Modern a day car. But you should always wear sunscreen. Okay. Question number six. Introduced to the market in 1868, which hot sauce company is the oldest surviving brand in the world? You've seen it plenty of times on the dining tables of various Mexican and barbecue joints. I think it's Tabasco. It is Tabasco. Um, Edmund Micheleni, the founder of the Tabasco sauce, was an avid gardener, and he uh, got some pepper seeds that were from Mexico or Central America and planted them on Avery Island that is near New Orleans. Yes. The rest, it was on an island. Yes, yes. The rest, they say, is history. His name is also on the label. It says Micheleni Oh, yeah, Co. yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, question number seven. While legend has it that the first hot dog eating contest was held in 1916 to settle a bet over who was more patriotic, the first recorded contest was in 1972. What hot dog company has headlined the most famous hot dog eating contest since then, which is held annually on July 4th in Coney Island? It's Nathan's. It is Nathan's Famous. Um, Major League Eating, or MLE, formerly known as the (laughs) International Federation of Competitive Eating, the IFOCE, has sanctioned the event since 1997. Today, only entrants currently under contract by MLE can compete in the contest. Joey Chestnut has won the men's title every year since 2007, except for 2015, when Matt Stoney usurped him. The current record is like 72 hot dogs or something like that. It's disgusting. It's why, what, why would you, how is this a sport? Also, okay. how is there a, a federation I, of competitive even, eating? The the record is 74 hot dogs. 74 and hot dogs. buns. Yes. Oh yeah. You know, you got to get the bonds too. Up from 72 the previous year. Um, I've thought about this. Okay. You know, all these oh. restaurants that do like competitive eating Wait, challenges. For, for a hot second. I thought you, when you said, I've thought about this, I thought you were going to finish that with. I've thought about this, and I, I think I want to do it. I think I want to start. <laughs> well, listen, okay, here's the ahead, thing. All these restaurants that do, like, eating challenges and stuff, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. Oh, you know what I would do? I would do, like, the ice cream eating challenges. Like, the place really? that's like, here's 22 scoops of ice cream in a bucket. You have a half an hour. Do you Game think you on. could do it? Yeah. Wow. I think I could win an ice cream challenge. All right. I don't think I could do, like, the meat ones and the... The stuff that's gross. I would never want to do anything gross, obviously. But no, like, no, no. we have a friend that tried the um, at Sticky Lips. What's their what was their big plate challenge at Sticky Lips? Atomic bomb challenge at Sticky Lips, oh which was God. like a pound of pulled pork, a pound of this other meat, a pound of French no. fries, a pound of hot sauce. Which in <laughs> Rochester terms is like this loot, loose meat sauce they put on the stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's and call really it hot gross. Sauce. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so our friend started it. Our friend Dane. Shout out, Dane. Hi. Oh, um, Jane. He started with the French fries like an idiot. Oh, what he a knows stupid. this. We've told him oh, this before. Oh my gosh. But yeah, you have like thirty minutes to finish this five pound plate of food, and he started with the French fries. Well, that's just a that's an <laughs> amateur move. Anyway, <laughs> but ice cream, I could. All right. I could probably house an ice cream challenge. Honestly, though, like it doesn't, it, these aren't foods. I don't know. Like they <laughs> dip it in water so they can slide it down oh, easy. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just, I think it's just like a perfect example of the gluttony and ex- <laughs> excess of the American people. But who am I? I'm nobody. I, I've never eaten a bunch of hot dogs in a row. Yeah. Not without trying. Hey, yo. <laughs> Okay, question number four hot dogs. Four hot dogs? Sounds great. I could eat four hot dogs. If if I if I've only had breakfast and it's like five thirty PM and I'm really hungry. Yeah. Four hot dogs, done. Yeah. Pickles, mustard. Just that's probably how Joey Chestnut started. I mean, probably. All right. Question number eight. It's not a key or an atoll. Urban areas often experience higher temperatures during the summer thanks to an effect known as an urban heat what? Hmm. (laughs) Okay. Peninsula. Oh, you're so close. Uh, it's an. Do you want you archipelago? Can, you gonna <laughs> uh, straight? You're um, getting too complicated with it. It's not a key island. Island. 
It's defect. an island. Yes. It's an urban heat island. Um, it's due to buildings, roads, and other infrastructures absorbing solar energy, resulting in higher temperatures. Um, it's most often uh, very apparent when you go to New York City. New York City. So when you, yes. like in the winter, if you're like, oh, it's like 20 degrees here, and then you go to New York and you're like, actually, it's pretty comfortable. It's like 40 here. It's yeah. because of the urban heat island. Okay. Um, usually. Um, okay, question number nine. The first hot air balloon passengers were a rooster, a duck, and a sheep, thanks to the whims and fancies of what 18th century French queen? Marie Antoinette. It was Marie Antoinette. In 1783, the first hot air balloon was set to fly over the heads of Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and the French court in Versailles. Like monkeys in space, these odd assortment of animals were chosen to test the effects of flight. Um, Sheep, thought to be similar to people, would show the effects of altitude on a land dweller, while ducks and roosters, which could already fly, albeit at different heights, uh, would act as controls in the experiment. Yeah. Uh, The balloon flew on a tether for eight minutes, rising 1,500 feet into the air and traveling two miles before being brought safely to the ground. The animals were unharmed. Oh, good. Yeah, just a perfectly pleasant, nice experiment. And that sheep tried to tell his friends. And they were like, okay, Barry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's keep eating this grass. And how about you shut up? Okay. <clears throat> Question number 10. For all the marbles, Channing Tatum first burst onto the silver screen in the classic film Step Up and went on to star in such films as Magic Mike, our favorite movie, Magic Mike XXL, and what 2010 Nicholas Sparks tearjerker that paired him with Amanda Seyfried? That's Dear John. That is Dear John. In fact, his breakout, can I tell you? Please. Was when he was cast as a dancer in Ricky Martin's 2000 She Bangs video. He was in that video? Which I watched for trivia <gasps> purposes. Uh-huh. I and looked. And you spotted him? I could not spot him. Oh. There's just so many <laughs> smash cuts, smash oh, cuts. so many. <laughs> so, you know, so this She Bangs video, mm-hmm. if you remember correctly, is the one where he's like underwater, you know? Oh. And he like, he like dives into the ocean and there are mermaids for some reason. And then he goes to an underwater club where there are like people dancing and stuff. I highly recommend, I'm going to link it in the Twitter. It is so two thousands. It's not even funny. It's upsettingly two thousands. Yes. Oh, he was behind the bar. You know what? I thought he would be behind the bar, but I guess I was wrong. He's in an underwater I didn't club. See he's in an underwater club and Channing Tatum is behind the bar tossing. Um, he's not as built, but he was also a lot younger then. Yeah. Uh, it was almost 20 years ago. Ugh. Oh my God. But the clothes. 20 years ago. I know. It was 19 years ago. So <gasps> the the clothes are insane. Mm-hmm. The hair is out of control. Ricky Martin, I don't know why we ever thought this man was a straight man <laughs> ever. I think we were just willfully ignorant because he's so good looking. I, it's just, it's so good. It's it's a it's a little piece of our past that is oh. just impeccable. Oh, he's wearing bootcut jeans. Oh, it's so good. It's <laughs> so good. <laughs> so anyway. Oh, that was great. That was my quiz on hot things. Thank you. <laughs> uh, if you want to tell us about some hot things, yeah, uh, tell us make it work appropriate, though. Uh, no, you, you can don't email to. us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at misinfopod. Uh, we have a Facebook page, misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. And we have a website, www.misinfopod.com. 
And thank you so much to everyone who has written us like nice messages and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's really sweet of you guys. We don't want to have to read them all on air because you would get like, you'd be like, oh my God, shut up about yourselves. I guess some people <laughs> like you. Um, but yeah, people it's like really us. nice. And yeah. thank you. It's very lovely. Um, you can also stream us uh, at that aforementioned triple dub dot misinfopod.com. You can get us wherever you find podcasts, you know, guys. Um, and please uh, rate, review, and subscribe. And, uh, um, thank you for all of the kind messages and reviews and things. And please tell a friend. Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, <laughs> thank you for listening to a lot of fiery stuff the past couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.